I'm Doug Mattingly. I'm a doctor of musical arts, studio guitar performance major. What is studio guitar? Uh, I've never been clear about that myself, but there's a lot of practicing involved, so very hands-on. But I can tell you this, it's not classical guitar. I spend my time, both in school and in professional music settings, playing jazz, rock, blues, funk, pop, country. Of course, not necessarily in that order. Now, sometimes I'm playing live. Other times I'm recording in a professional recording studio. Other times I'm recording in my home project studio. I also teach guitar in styles that you might call popular music or commercial music. I teach songwriting, sight singing, and in the past I have taught music appreciation, musicianship for popular music, ranging for popular music, world music, all that taken together is the basis of what I do for a living. Now today I want to focus on that last part, teaching popular music and possibly more important, learning popular music and specifically at the college level. So we're going to take a look, albeit an anecdotal look, at some of the teaching and learning practices going on in popular music education today at a two-year community college at a four-year state college, and at a private four-year university. We're going to speak with a panel of music educators from across the spectrum and across the country to get a sense of what's going on in higher ed music programs. What do they have in common? What are they doing that's different from one another? What are the programs like? And who are these popular music educators? How did they learn to teach this kind of music? First, let's define what we mean by popular music. Now, in this context, we're not talking about music that's necessarily popular, like a number one hit or on the Billboard Top 40, although it certainly could be. But here, I'm using the term to mean a particular tradition. That includes the genre we might call pop, like Taylor Swift today, or maybe Janet Jackson or Duran Duran in the 1980s. But I'm also talking about all kinds of rock music, R&B, electronic dance music, country, really anything that's not, quote, classical music or jazz, and from any era. So it's a lineage or tradition that we're talking about here, one that starts, in the U.S. at least, with blues and folk musics of various kinds. But wait, some of you may say, wasn't jazz popular music? Yes, it was, in the 1920s swing era and through the big band eras of the 30s and 40s. And it's in the mid-1940s when some of America's earliest college-level popular music education began, right here in Los Angeles, in two-year colleges, as a matter of fact. So we'll touch on this legacy a little bit later. But hold on. I can hear others of you saying, jazz is America's classical music. Oh, it is now, absolutely. But it started as pop music. Imagine that. We'll touch on that a little later as well. And we'll see where jazz stands in higher education today and how our panel of music educators feels about that. My journey as a musician started like a lot, if not the vast majority of musicians who play popular music. I was in middle school discovering all types of rock and pop music, having graduated finally from listening to the Jungle Book soundtrack and the children's introduction to the orchestra. It was guitar rock that quite literally struck a chord with me, or I with it, as it would turn out. You know, the stuff you'd call classic rock today. So one day, as my friend and I walked around the neighborhood listening to Pink Floyd and ACDC on cassette tape, and by the way, we didn't have a proper boombox. We had one of those Radio Shack realistic voice recorders. You know, like you used in school for, what did we use those for? Anyway, it sounded great. Well, at least good enough that I said to my friend, wouldn't it be neat? Yes, I said neat. 
Wouldn't it be neat to play electric guitar? Being 11 years old on the cusp of 12 himself, he of course concurred. So right then and there, I walked home and asked my parents if I could get an electric guitar. My parents wisely decided that it would be best if they rented an acoustic guitar for me from the local music shop, along with procuring some lessons, until we were all sure this guitar thing would stick. So that's where it started for me, in a music shop, taking formal lessons. Or did the learning actually start with listening to that Radio Shack recorder through some kind of musical osmosis? And that brings me to our crossroads, formal versus informal learning. Now, let's take a moment to define those two terms. Let's get academic for a second. The influential music educator and researcher Lucy Green defines informal learning as having the following characteristics. One, learners choose the music themselves. Two, music is learned orally through listening and imitating recordings. Three, learning takes place in friendship groups. Four, skills and knowledge are acquired through self-study or peer teaching. And five, learning is integrated. Learners are performers, composers, improvisers, and listeners with an emphasis on originating music. The researcher and educator Sherry Jaffers defines formal instruction as typically teacher-led and the curricula are more structured with clearly defined learning objectives that afford less flexibility, and spontaneity. Those music shop guitar lessons, that osmosis, it's a familiar story for generations of musicians. So I wanted to find out from our panel, these highly accomplished musicians, all with formal music educations, were their paths like mine? And what exactly are these programs? I spoke with Ross Levinson, a professor of music at California State University, Los Angeles. It's called the Cal State LA uh, Commercial Music Program. The thought has always been a music that is geared towards the current commercial state of affairs, meaning pop, rock, blues, EDM, funk, all that kind of stuff, film and television, how to arrange, how to produce, how to record in a studio, how to mix, how to engineer. It's all the things that one would do if one is in this industry. So what is this industry? It's not the jazz industry. It's making uh, music that will service commercials, TV, film, anything that's pop in the world today. So it's not jazz. People that are interested in taking their music and turning it into songs or film score or something like that, that will then turn into making money for them. Now, generally speaking, what Ross described for us was common to all our guests' programs, whether they called it popular music or commercial music. I wanted to go to the other side of the country for a moment, to the Community College of Baltimore County. And I wanted to get into more of the specifics of some of the courses that are offered. Brian Camato is an associate professor of music and coordinator of the Music Production and Audio Recording Technology Certificate Program at CCBC. So it's a 30-credit certificate program in um, music production and audio recording technology. The idea is to give students a good foundation in audio technology and applications, like you know, not just studio stuff, but live sound as well. There's a, one class called Popular Music Theory. There's another class called MIDI and Music Production Techniques. But the four core classes are Intro to Audio Technology, Audio Recording techniques, techniques 1. We do those two classes seven weeks apiece in the fall semester. And in the spring semester, we do Audio Recording Techniques 2 and Advanced Audio Recording Techniques. I turn to Dr. William Watson. He's Dean of Arts and Communication at CCBC. During his tenure as the music program coordinator there, he began developing the Music Production and Audio Recording Technology Certificate program back in 2002. When we were building the program, I... Of course, you know, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. 
So you look at other places that have recording programs. And none of them, however, at the time, had anything that was a recording program that was related to popular music. They were programs that were very intensely physics and acoustics oriented. And I knew that our students didn't want that. We were going to have students that wanted to record their friend's band and or when they got out into the world to do jobs like that, like recording bands, doing live sound for a a pop band somewhere. And so we really tailored the curriculum to be responsive to those sorts of needs. Back on the West Coast, the University of Southern California's Thornton School of Music had a studio guitar program that included some popular music, but it was largely a jazz-based program. I spoke to Tim Kobza, assistant professor of practice in the studio jazz guitar and popular music programs, about how that program got started and how they were meeting the needs of their population. We were sort of building and expanding on the non-major program at USC. It just kept growing and growing and expanding. And we noticed there was all this interest in things that were outside of the normal, formal conservatory model of jazz or classical studies. They're just interested in songwriting. They're interested in playing in bands, playing contemporary pop music. And then um, the conversation emerged, you know, we should consider this whole popular music thing as a curriculum and develop it from the ground up and do it right. So what does doing it right look like? Ross Levinson, Cal State LA. And the idea was always to give our students as much a real world experience as possible. And music practicum, which is basically a class that gets together and makes a record. Okay, you're a producer, you're a songwriter, uh, uh, you're artist. If you're going to work with a DAW. A DAW is a digital audio workstation like Pro Tools or Logic. You have to be completely free inside the door. You should, you should know it as well as you know an instrument or your voice and be, be facile on it so that if an idea comes to you, you're not going, oh, wait, how do I transpose? I don't know how to transpose. And you're sitting there, you already lost the idea. So what about this idea of making learning like a real world environment? Brian Camato, CCBC. Part of the challenge is actually keeping the focus on audio engineering. Like if that's what the class is about, you know what I mean? Then we want to concentrate on like, how do you use this mixer and what mic are we putting where and why did we pick that microphone? And I try to encourage you know, musicality, of course, in classes like that. But I tend to lean on students who already know how to play. Things could get really kind of far afield and crazy really quickly. So I'm trying to get them to embrace the job of being behind the glass at the board. I have MIDI and music production techniques where we do everything from doing like a little uh, bed, you know, sort of a commercial application, like a musical bed that loops uh, to film scoring, to popular songs, to all kinds of things. My popular music theory course is, is really where I'm trying to focus on the content of the music there, like the Determining like what key it's in, what what the time signature is, you know what I mean? Like how if we're gonna take this piece of music and make a chart out of it, which is ultimately what I'm trying to teach them, this theory class is part of a recording technology course, a program. And so I want them to instead of saying like what well, that part, you know that part you do there, you know, do that again. For you to be intelligently, you know, able to say, you know, from the third bar of the second chorus, labeling the parts of songs, um, and then getting in and actually, okay, well, how many measures is each part, right? And then getting into, okay, what's the chord progression and how do we notate that? Tim Kobza, USC. I think what what is cool and sort of consistent with our faculty is that we're all trying to train professional people to do things that professionals do, which is 
get your assignments in deadlines, downbeats, you know, the things we always talk about goes up actually a little beyond like what your skill level is. Sometimes it's like your professional daily interaction with your cohort, your citizenry, you know, with your classmates and your teachers. And like this stuff is probably the demands that are put on the students that are sort of intangible yet prepping them for a career in a professional environment. I'm always trying to be super practical in my classes, which is like, hey, we're doing cover songs in here. You're really good. You're really into this. You could do this on a higher level if you want to, meaning you could actually do this outside of school. You could get a band together. You could be a freelance player, but you have to sort of have all this stuff together. You have to be able to read good enough to have a book thrown in front of you with chords and some rhythms. Singers, you need to get your book together with your keys and your repertoire list, and you need to be able to lead a band. So we work on a lot of these super practical things in my non-major pop performance classes. Here's how you do it if you want to be a professional musician and what's expected of you. But let's step back a moment. Who are these music educators? Are they popular or commercial music practitioners themselves? Or are they jazz or classical musicians? Daniel Lewis, music program coordinator at the Community College of Baltimore County. On paper and by degrees, I I very much look like a super, super classical sort of person. I have a bachelor's in classical guitar performance, a master's in classical guitar performance, and I'm halfway through an MFA in composition. Like most other guitar players, started with an electric guitar when I was 12 years old. You know, at that time, and still, this is very much still the case in much of the academic musical world, if you're going to go into college, you're going to have to choose a classical track or a jazz track. For the four years of college and the four years of grad school, I was a very typical classical guitar major. But of course, that foundation was already there from learning songs by ear from a record and, you know, sort of improvising, make writing songs with friends every other week, starting a new band with somebody to just try to, <laughs> you know, try to play some songs. Cal State LA's Ross Levinson describes his transition from classical violinist to the pop and rock world. I'm playing classically, but I'm listening to all this other music. For me, at around 13 or 14, I started creating these little bands in my basement in Brooklyn where we I did, had no idea how to make a good electric violin sound. And we didn't know what we were doing, but we would just try to play rock and roll and make screechy. Everything was loud and noisy and terrible. And then it became really about this sort of keeping my formal education in one bag. I had no idea how to improvise, and I would just be like, well just make noise just you know play a sound and I ended up studying with a trombone player you know to teach me how to sort of figure out how to play changes and I looked at books at jazz books but then I try to listen to rock and see well how can I do that and then I finally found got my first Barkus Burry electric violin and so then in college I then started writing for theater and playing for theater they didn't know what to do with me I walked into the jazz band and said hey I want to I want to play with you guys and the guy's like you're, you're a violin player I said yeah I want to play with you So here we have musicians who are trained formally, but have informal music learning backgrounds as well. I wanted to know how their personal learning history affects their teaching of popular music today. A lot of it was not formal. Informal learning on my own that really opened my brain up and opened my mind up to try to then see what do I want to do with my life musically. 
Brian Camato at CCBC. Before I started trying to learn things by ear, I knew all my key signatures. I had a pretty decent idea of what a core progression was. But I do feel like I had this weird sort of classical training, um, at least classical theory training at a very young age because I was in a boy choir, you know, and we learned how to sight read and we learned how to sight sing. Like singing, obviously, we all know. I mean, singing is so important to all this. Dan Lewis on teaching in the classroom. And I would always explicitly say, you can talk to each other, you can get up and move, do whatever you want, you know, because there's always somebody who wants to just do it by themselves. But more often than not, these two people are going to work together, these two people, that sort of peer to peer practice of music making, I really want them to see that even traditional material is still music in the same way that you and I would sit down to figure out how a lick in some song goes. I wanted that to break down that barrier, especially concerning notated music, which always, especially in a classroom sense, always feels more rigid and feels more um, set in stone. And I want them to see how fluid it is and how collaborative it is. I want that all to feel as open-ended as you and me sitting in the living room with our guitars, figuring out how a song goes. That's always a big part of my teaching, and that's that was my music learning experience for a lot of it, and I want the students to bring that into any style that they're working with. So learning by ear, figuring stuff out from a method book, playing in bands, jamming with friends, trying to apply theory that you already know. What about playing in cover bands? I mean, playing cover music was sort of what I did for for money all since high school. Tim Kobza. That was the thing happening when I was a kid, live music. Unfortunately, I feel like there's not as many outlets for live music. I still think there's a, a vibrant scene in many places, including Los Angeles, where you can go out and play cover gigs, you know, at a, at a club or something. That's my, my youth right there. Even when I moved to LA, I, I picked up a gig immediately doing a five-nighter, rotating all these these hotels and places where live music was still happening. And I mean, to be honest with you, that has informed my teaching in huge ways. I lived all eras of pop music from the 70s on. And so, yeah, I'm kind of a living history container for the music that I grew up playing and I still play today, you know. The complex nature of popular music and the magic of how those arrangements fit together is part of the study. And once you get into it, you realize how hard it is and how easy they make it seem. As Tim mentions here, there may not be as many opportunities to play live music as there once were. Are we seeing that reflected in students' backgrounds as they enter popular music programs? I asked CCBC's Dan Lewis for his experiences. CCBC students, and I would say probably community college music students across the country, are not entering the music institution the same way that someone who starts at a conservatory is doing. And so I assumed that these students, like me, were coming from a non-classical entry point, which to my mind was, yeah, you had a guitar, you messed around a little bit, or in today's day and age, you had a DAW and you messed around a little bit and had some familiarity making beats and doing something. And over time, it became clear that my students didn't have that context. And the only musical context they had were the techniques we were learning in theory and ear training, which I was teaching in a very traditional theory context because that was what I thought they needed, like I had, to add on to 
the sort of pop music informal foundation that that I had. And so once that light bulb clicked that they're trying to analyze or think about pop music that they interact with in their everyday lives by doing Roman numeral analysis, and they're thinking about how it doesn't match the progression chart, they're not understanding that it shouldn't because it's different music. That was a big light bulb for me. And that is when I really started sort of wanting to bring a much more heavy emphasis on actually learning about pop music and sort of filling in that gap that I had assumed wasn't actually there. Ross Levinson at Cal State. If you can't play a scale in tune, I don't know what you can do. You can sort of be able to do the basics. I, don't, I know I've tried to teach students who just want to pick up an instrument and go like, yeah, I'm just going to blow into it and see what happens. I go, yeah. You know, you can't rock and roll until you play your damn scales and get them in tune and you know and then you can start having fun with it i'm a strong believer in a very strong foundation in whatever you do and then once you have that it'll open your ears up because if you don't if you don't have the foundation you don't even know what you're hearing as students begin acquiring skills they refine and add to them in ensembles bill watson taught a non-classical ensemble at ccbc from 1982 to 2007 it's still in existence and it's still called jazz plus why did he name it that because it was jazz plus other music because for students who don't know how to play jazz very much it's hard i mean if 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 you just throw them in there and the first their 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 first experience with playing jazz or, or, or let's just say we give them a lead sheet right a lead sheet fake book chords uh okay go they don't know what to do so you have to sort of spoon feed them a little bit and the way to get them to do it i always thought was you give them stuff that was sort of in between so you know there's a lot of repertoire there are a lot of pop songs there are a lot of songs that are sort of in the middle that you can introduce some of the concepts slowly and comfortably and they can feel like they're making progress pretty quickly and that's the other thing if they can sound pretty good in a couple rehearsals you've made a huge stride with them we know when our first recital is it's usually around week five so it's like we've got to do some songs and we've got to sound good in in eight rehearsals or something like that so you just got to pick the right pieces for them i got into specifics about usc's ensembles with tim kobza USC uses the word cohort as a kind of term of art in defining their classes. This is the freshman class, every cohort, which includes, let's just say, four drummers, four keyboard players, four guitar players, bass players, maybe four or five singer-songwriters and five singers, and maybe somebody who plays another miscellaneous instrument is put into a cohort. That is our class. They come up through their four-year program together. And they come up, the freshman class being the class that is the performance class that that studies, you know, all those genres and styles of roots music of America. Is there a specific number each year for the freshman class as they come in, number of students, and or is the program looking to say, we need this many guitar players, we need this many bass players? Yeah, we tried the best to get four bands worth, you know, so we have our cohorts around 25 students in the freshman class. So that includes singers and singer-songwriters as well. The singer-songwriters are in the same cohort, so they have to go through the same regiment of study as, say, the bass players and drummers do. Ross Levinson at Cal State. My big thing is I, I started a band there, a commercial music band. We started with barely four people, 
and now there's uh, 40 to 50 people in it. That band, I'm always talking to my players about, I'd much rather you play one single note if it's a true note rather than just sitting here and saying, I'm just going to play a blues scale. Blues scale doesn't happen to be in right and you start, no, no, no. Then just play the note. Play the note that you hear. Sit there and just play it until it, it, it doesn't work anymore and then maybe find another. And then go back and shed and figure out what you can play. But when you're improvising, what we do as performers, this is strictly performance related. What we do as performance is dangerous. And they hear me say that and sometimes they're like, what is he talking about? What you do is if you're going to be safe on the stage, no one wants to see that. People want to see you as a singer, dig for that note, dig for that uh, that moment. As a performer, they want to see you stretching. Not mean, and again, I'm staying away from jazz. You know, people make fun of rock. They go, oh, you don't have to be great to play rock. I'm sorry. The greatest rock players, you know, for me, Jimi Hendrix, the greatest guitar player ever in the world. You know, you, you, you listen to that stuff and you go, how did they find that? Well, they found it because they was being, there was a moment of danger. Brian Kamado. The great thing about it, but also the challenge of it is I don't know who's going to sign up. In the spring, I'm anticipating having an ensemble, but I have no idea if I'll have one singer, two singers, maybe three. Probably have a guitarist, bass player, drummer. And then I kind of like tailor my approach based on what I think these students need, you know? So when we're talking about like a classic, a standard or something that these students might not know. So I'll put like the YouTube video, like, hey, check this out for rehearsal on Monday. Not just because I want them checking it out, but also just because that's how we work as musicians a lot of times. Hey, we're going to, you know, rehearse on Tuesday night, have these five songs learned. They don't say, well, here's the lead sheets and here's the sheet music and here's how this works. You know, sometimes you're in that situation, but many times you're not. And so you have to like, you know, live with the tunes, right? And sort of learn them and figure out how you're going to approach them and all that sort of stuff. You know, for certain students, you know, they need to get better at reading. And some of them are just afraid, you know, you start writing notation up on the board or something like that and they start freezing up. But, you know, in that case, maybe we'll break it down together, clap through it, whatever we have to do. One of the challenges in coming up with repertoire for popular music ensembles is that teachers can default to the music of their generation or the music they grew up with, which oftentimes turns out to be white, male, guitar, rock. And if there is a definitive canon in popular music, how do you decide what that is? Earlier, we got a good sense of how CCBC comes up with its rep for Jazz Plus. I wanted to know how USC and Cal State LA come up with their rep. From the beginning, it's been a, a rotating list as we learn what provides the best lessons. And we try to do it on a graduated scale. Tim Kobza. So they're going to continually hone the list, though a lot of the material has remained consistent from the beginning, honoring and paying homage to the music that pop music is built on, you know, the music of Black America, really. Trying to give the students an awareness of the history and the context of the music that they might be hearing on the radio today and where it came from. Ross Levinson. This semester happens to be, I made a teacher's choice because I just wanted to, I, you know, it's been a long time since I've done that. Very specifically, I said Motown between the years of 62 and 71. Normally I have the students vote on what we're going to do. Usually at the beginning of the semester, we sort of, people come up with ideas, we vote on the top and then we pick one and that's the semester. Just uh, Stevie Wonder, we've done one. We've done just uh, ones from music from the 70s. We did one hit wonders, music of the 80s, or I'm open to any suggestion. You know, people la laugh when you do Blue Bossa, but there's a key change in Blue, Blue Bossa, right? Brian Kamado. I feel like I always have to put myself in the position of a person who's never seen this tune before. They're not going to roll their eyes and say like, geez, I'm so sick of Blue Bossa. They've never heard it, right? So it's like, gee, I'm starting in C minor and I'm going up to D flat and I'm going back to C minor and like all the cool things we can do to traverse 
that and make that interesting. You know, and I use the board a lot and like what kind of scales would work over these chords. And a lot of them have never thought of that before. So I guess these are all just tools that I'm going to use based upon who I find in front of me and what I think they need. And of course, we also have the pressure of needing to sound like a decent ensemble fairly quickly. You know, if it's week five and we have a performance, you know, that needs to be immediate. And I, and I like bringing that to them too. It's like, if you've got a gig on the calendar, like that's your priority. And I don't care if you're sick of playing this song, we're going to do it 15 more times because it doesn't sound right. And we're going to break it down. And I think it's really good practical stuff. Bill Watson. Improvisation is something that every student should know, but they don't know how to until they sort of jump in the pool a little bit. And then they can I I jump in on that just while we're here. Dan Lewis. One of my big things with improvisation and Brian and I have actually led a number of improvisation workshops is I really feel the need to fight against the idea that improvisation only means taking the big solo. Because as we all know from sort of playing music, especially if like Doug, the example that you gave of just that, that sheet of paper with words and chords on it. Dan is referring to the age old method of writing the chords above the lyrics on an otherwise blank page. That by definition is going to be so highly improvised because there's no information there. And so whether that's coming from your sort of stylistic knowledge, a backlog of just what, or, or your sort of, uh, your inner ears memory of how the song sounds. Generally speaking, though, you're improvising 90% of that, whether you think you are or not. And so that sort of level of like bringing down the, the threshold of what we consider improvisation is so critical. And you can use that as a window into making people feel more comfortable with taking the big solo. But I also think that sort of like equilibrium of what's composition, what's improvisation, what's arrangement which is at the heart of popular music is sort of where do those lines all intersect? That's so critical. And just getting someone to see that, oh, the little tiny fill I put while I'm strumming these chords or like the little hammer on I do, that's entering into that sort of artistic space. And I think that that's critical. From my experience to some degree, and certainly from people that I've talked to about this, popular music seems to be getting a little bit of a pushback and can be can be difficult sometimes maybe to bring to the university. We're going through the same thing that earlier generations did with trying to bring jazz into formal education. Yeah, I'd like to speak to that for a sec because I think that is the reason why we all are trying to get it right in the, in the biggest way possible. We feel like it is our responsibility to do this right so we can be the model for what it looks like in an institution such as ours. We have a really interesting moment in history, in my opinion, happening. We're trying to get this so right so that it can be the model and we can push from this point forward, which is like master's education in pop music pedagogy, training people to teach pop music pedagogy, because we know they're coming. We know the interest is there. We know that the the students no, no longer have to fall between the cracks of classical or jazz, and it's great to be a part of it. It's really super exciting. Exciting indeed. I'd like to thank my guests. 
In order of appearance, Ross Levinson has worked with Tom Waits, Harry Belafonte, Joan Jett, and his own band, Plan B. He scored various documentaries and TV series, earning an Emmy nomination for the series Falcone. His violin playing has been heard on major feature films, including Terminator and Fright Night. Brian Kamado is an associate professor of music and coordinator of the Music Production and Audio Recording Technology Certificate Program at CCBC. He also teaches popular music theory, classical, jazz, and pop piano. Bill Watson has taught courses in the Beatles and in world music and led the jazz pop combo Jazz Plus for 25 years. He holds a DMA in music composition from the University of Maryland College Park and is active as a composer and an arranger in a variety of genres. Tim Kobza is a guitarist, multi-instrumentalist, composer, collaborator, and producer who continues to create and perform music inspired by an extensive career playing jazz, funk, Latin, soul, R&B, and improvised music. Tim has brought his passion for all things music to USC's Thornton School of Music for over two decades. Daniel Lewis is a guitarist and composer whose playing crosses the wide stylistic range of modern guitar technique and whose compositions have been praised as contemporary, fun, and complex. Dan holds a master's degree in classical guitar performance from the Mann School of Music and is an MFA candidate in music composition at Vermont College of Fine Arts. In addition to being the music program coordinator at CCBC, he also teaches the music theory and ear training sequence. Original music by Doug Mattingly, Ross Levinson, Brian Kamado, and Tim Kobza. Thanks for joining us for this important conversation about the future of popular music education. I'm Doug Mattingly. You can find out more about me at DougMattingly.com. Till next time.